when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Boris Johnson grasped around for ideas this week to fix the growing cost of living crisis as rising prices began to create electoral headaches for the Tories on the doorstep. Does he think that his choice to be the only leader in the G7 to raise taxes during a cost of living crisis has made things better or worse for working people. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at why the government is grasping around for more ideas to deal with rising fuel and food prices, which you heard Sir Keir Starmer discuss at the top. Why is the Treasury not doing more? And how does this play into next week's local elections? Political editor George Parker will analyse with chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley. And later, we'll be discussing the return of Pestminster, a new wave of sleaze and reports of inappropriate behaviour across British politics this week. Why does Westminster have such a particular issue with sexism and is enough being done to root out bad behaviour? Political correspondent Jasmine Cameron Seleshi will discuss with special guest Aisha Hazarika, political commentator and a former Labour Party advisor. Thank you all for joining. Ask any Tory MP what matters most to them and the answer is not Partygate or the Prime Minister standing, it's the cost of living crisis. Those food, fuel and energy prices are starting to have a serious impact and there's a simple question facing the government, is it doing enough? The Cabinet met for a special meeting this week to try and discuss cost of living and what more can be done, but so far not much is actually happening. At Prime Minister's questions this week, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer clash on whether the Prime Minister is doing enough to help people at a time when inflation is rampant. Next year, Mr Speaker, the UK is set for the slowest growth and the highest inflation in the G7. Why is he failing to manage the economy? We have the fastest growth in the G7 last year, which would not have been possible if we listened, if we listened to him. And, and if we listened to him, we would have frankly never come out of lockdown, right. uh, Mr Speaker. This must be the Oxford Union debating skills we've been hearing so much about. <laughs> Failing to answer the question, rambling incoherently, yeah. throwing in garbled metaphors. Yeah. Powerful stuff, Prime Minister. Our Chancellor cut taxes on uh, working people. Uh, the national insurance contribution uh, went down, uh, Mr Speaker, by an average of £330. Well, George Parker, welcome back to the pod. So these cost of living challenges seem to be a big issue in the country, but it's not really dominating in Westminster. Why is there such a disconnect on this? Well, it's very odd because if you talk to people involved in the local elections, they'll tell you that the cost of living is, you know, they put their hands up in the air so far above any other issue that people are talking about on the doorstep. Immigration comes in second. 
But Sleeves at Westminster is a long way down that list. Plus, you say it's the thing that's been consuming gossip around Westminster this week. I think part of the problem, one of the reasons why it hasn't risen up the agenda more, is we've just had a spring statement by the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, where he tried to address this issue, not very successfully, as we've discussed on several previous occasions. And there's a general view that he's going to have to do an awful lot more. Now, Rishi Sunak's view is that the next big fiscal intervention must wait until the autumn when he thinks things might become a bit clearer on the situation in Ukraine, where wholesale energy prices are. And he told Mumsness in an interview this week it would be silly to do anything more now on the fiscal side. But that creates a bit of a political vacuum for the government because there's quite a few months between now and the autumn when families are going to be facing really tough times, not just in energy terms, but in terms of food bills as well. We reported this week that food has gone up by about 6% in the last year. So really squeezing household budgets. And that's the context of this extraordinary cabinet meeting held on Tuesday this week, where ministers were invited to come in and do a sort of dragon's den type pitch of ideas to the prime minister, that things that he could do to help address the cost of living crisis without actually spending very much money at all. And that's why we ended up with an extraordinary list, at least, of uh, things which immediately leaked to the press. Robert Trimsley, great to have you back on as always. Rishi Sunak's use of the word silly has not gone down particularly well because, as we said, for a lot of people, this is a very serious matter. This is, can you fill up your car? Can you pay your heating bills? And as this goes on, you will see more and more reports in newspapers about people really struggling and having a chancellor saying, well, taking more action would be silly. It does give a sense that maybe the Treasury and that side of things are not taking this maybe as seriously as the PM and Number 10 would like it. I mean, yes, when you're down, you're really down. And I think that's part of the problem for Rishi Sunak is that actually, you know, he's on a downward curve at the moment. People can see all the things he's doing wrong and therefore every stray word hurts. But particularly for someone as wealthy as him, talking like this is not clever. I think the Treasury's in a very difficult spot given what its view is and Rishi Sunak's view, which is that there's no point in wasting money that won't do you any good either financially or politically. And one of the arguments is, you can throw some more drops into this bucket, but in the end, if people don't notice it, if they're still feeling things going up in price, if they're still feeling poorer, they're not going to thank you for it. There is a cold logic to saying, let's just get a really clear picture of this, let's give it a few months, then come in with some big intervention, some blockbuster intervention, rather than a few drops in the bucket, and show people that we're caring and helping. And also, let's just not fritter money away that we don't have tons of. But the trouble is, in the end, you only have two choices on this issue, and it's not an issue that they control because outside supply shocks affecting so much of this. You can either cut taxes or you can cut spending. And the truth is, they're not in a place where they feel comfortable yet doing either. So the Treasury is in a very difficult position if it wants to be purist. And you've got a Prime Minister who's anything but purist in his approach to fiscal matters saying, hell with this, help the public. It's what the public need and it's what I need for my re-election. And it's setting up a nasty confrontation. And I think the Treasury line just can't hold till... Christmas or another, awesome. another point that Rishi Sunak was making at this cabinet meeting was that he fears that another big fiscal intervention at this stage will actually push inflation even further up. And he reminds cabinet ministers at every meeting that the cost of servicing our debt is going to be, I think, about £80 billion this year, much higher than people expected. So that, again, is the context in which Rishi Sunak's operating. And there is this sense, George, about the drop in the ocean problem is that this thing is huge. It's obviously not just affecting the UK. Inflation is rising across all developed economies. And the fact is, 
there's no clear line within government about what to do with this. You know, there's some senior cabinet ministers who say, look, late this year, we are going to have to do something massive. They talk about a COVID-style intervention to deal with energy prices. If the Ukraine war is going on, of course, we heard the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss warning this week that the dispute in Ukraine could drag on for years, which if that does prove to be the case, then the government will have no choice but to do something big in the autumn because you'll be going into winter with energy prices very high. And for the Conservatives, the key thing is the end of this year is when you're starting to really get into thinking about election territory. They've lost their ratings on competence, the economy to the Labour Party, who are now seen as more trusted on running the economy. And so that's why ultimately I think there will have to be action. But as this sort of odd cabinet meeting, as you said, Dragon's Den style, there's no consensus at all within government about what should or could even be done at that point. No, but I mean, I think you're right that they are going to have to do a very big intervention in the autumn. You know, if we're talking about the energy cap going to £2,800, which I think is the current estimate in government from just under £2,000 at the moment, that's a huge hole in household income. So they're going to have to do more. But I agree with Robert. I mean, the, the point is there is a drop in the ocean point and the question about when you get most political bang for your buck in terms of tax cuts and you always get that much closer to an election date. So... Rishi Sunak will do what he has to do or feels he has to do politically in the autumn to help people through this crisis at the moment. But he wants to hold back as much money as he possibly can to deliver tax cuts closer to the election. But what I thought was interesting about this cabinet meeting this week was it was inviting people to basically make pitches to the cabinet, which immediately leaked. And it started to look like a beauty contest for the next Tory leadership. A lot of people flaunting their small state conservative credentials. And there was talk about cutting the um, the ratio between carers and children in nursery provision or reducing the number of times the state checks the safety of your car, the MOT test, other things like that. So it was a whole load of slightly strange things. But as uh, Torsten Bell of the Resolution Foundation said, it looks like we're losing the plot here if we think these are going to make a massive difference. It did remind me, Robert, of the end days of Theresa May when people would go into the cabinet room and within about 10 minutes, George and I's phones would be flipping up with WhatsApps of people saying, oh, well, you'll never guess what X said. And it was all people trying to line themselves up for when Mrs May fell. Do you think we're in that kind of situation? Because there is this sense that there is a lot of drift in the Johnson government at the moment, that we've got the Queen's speech coming up and the big desire from number 10 has been to actually strip back legislation and try and do less. And a sense that really, is anything going on? Has anyone got a grip? Is the government doing anything? Was it really just given up on governing and it's just already started campaigning for the next election? Yeah, I mean, I do think that their focus is now entirely on campaigning and there's two campaigns. There's the campaign to save Boris Johnson and there's the campaign to get yourself re-elected. You know, Downing Street is is literally an electoral machine again rather than the centre of govern and functioning control. And you can see that. And a lot of the things that are part of the government's long-term thinking around, for example, levelling up, they're just being pushed to one side because they might hit nimbyism and voters on planning. You can see that lack of overall strategic grip in the government. The other thing in terms of the cabinet ministers, and I think you're right, it was exactly like that, is... There are two dynamics here. There is obviously the potential of a leadership contest going on, but there is also the positioning for what happens if Boris Johnson were to fall by those people who themselves are not going to be contenders who want to make sure they're safe or that they're on the up. And positioning yourself as someone in tune with your own party is really, really important. So coming out with strong, rightish, conservative statements, appearing to have a good ideas about how to tackle cost of living is helpful. Even if you're not going to be a contender, it might safeguard you in a reshuffle with a new leader. Now, we'll have got a very handy electoral test, George, on whether this matters and whether Westminster is right or the country is right with the local elections that the country is going to the polls next Thursday and we've got local council contests across the UK. And 
what's our general sense on where this is going to be? Because the expectations has been they're going to be bad for the Conservatives because obviously it's midterms. We've gone through the Partygate scandal and then on top of it, the cost of living crisis. But it feels like there's going to be quite a big geographical disparity on what the results are and that there could be some parts of the country where you've been reporting this week in London that are going to be bad, but other parts in the North and the Midlands where it might not be as bad. Yes, I mean, the expectation management on both sides, the Conservative and Labour side, is extraordinary at the moment. And you speak to Conservatives who say that the baseline assumption is that they'll lose at least 800 seats on May the 5th. The moment you start to even mention those kind of numbers, you'll get a call from Keir Starmer's office saying this is ridiculous. The Labour Party is fighting these elections from a very high point in 2018 when most of these contests were last fought. So the fact is, yes, I mean, we're going to see a very big geographical split on this. In London, it's going to be very tough for the Conservatives, even though Labour did very well in 2018 under Jeremy Corbyn. Conservatives were under pressure in some of their flagship councils, Barnet, Westminster, Wandsworth in particular. So it's going to be difficult for the Tories there. I'd be interested to see how the Conservatives do against the Liberal Democrats in some of the rural seats. So one place I would definitely watch out for is Somerset, which has become a unitary council now. It used to be a Lib Dem stronghold first time that council will have had elections. So I think you're picking up some rumours on the ground that the Lib Dems are doing quite well down there. But outside London, in some of the towns in the north and the Midlands, you've written about in your book, Seb, certainly the Conservatives are feeling a bit more bullish. And you hear there's quite a lot below the radar social media advertising going out in places like Hartlepool, Sunderland, Newcastle under Lyme, I think is an interesting one in the Potteries as well. So those are the kinds of places where the Conservative Party still thinks this can actually outperform the national picture and give them something to talk about in a positive way on May the 6th. Well, Robert, what is a good or bad night for Labour on this? Because everyone's been saying, well, if there's bad local elections, that will bring Boris Johnson's leadership question to a head and we could have a confidence vote and all the things that fall off the back of that. But it does strike me, actually, if Labour take Wandsworth and Barnet in London, which seems quite likely, and obviously Wandsworth is very symbolic for the Conservatives having been Tory since 1978, always been a bastion of Thatcherite low-tax efficiency. But if they're not making gains in those red wall places George was just talking about, which is where it has to win to win the next election. Will some people be looking at Keir Starman and saying, hang on a minute, you've been leader two years, we're actually not really advancing that much? It's tricky because local elections very rarely deliver the absolute decisive result that people expect. Annoying um, for us. Annoying for you. Know, they're localised. A lot of these councils, um, they're only electing a third of their councillors this time. And, you know, if you took places like Peterborough or Bolton, which are interesting places, or Bury for Labour, in many of these places, it's the Labour seats that are more up for election rather than the Conservative ones. So it gets very messy and very complicated. So you end up looking for a few totemic councils, like the ones in London you've mentioned, other places like Sunderland. Yeah, yeah you, you start looking a few places saying, how has it played there? And I think Labour will make progress in these elections. But whether you will look at these elections afterwards and go, wow, absolute slam dunk, Keir Starmer's on his way to number 10, I'd be very surprised. I think it's going to be bitty and messy. If you remember last year's mayoral elections, where, you know, on the first day after the count, everyone was saying how badly Labour had done. And then on day two, when the next set of results came in, actually, it wasn't quite as bad as we thought. So I would expect these results to be messy. I think they'll have something for everyone. Everyone will be able to find the bit of news in them that shows it went well for them. But I think we'll look back on this. Did we really think that was going to be decisive? 
I could be wrong, but that's my hunch. <laughs> well, this is the thing, George. I spoke to a former senior cabinet minister from the Cameroon era who said to me, the issue in the Tory party right now is that everyone else thinks it's someone else's job to remove Boris Johnson. Mm. And that is the situation we're in, that there's obviously clearly a lot of unhappiness. And last week when we were recording the pod, it felt like he was really on the ropes. And in some ways it swung back again when we were at PMQs this week. The noise and the feeling in the chamber was totally at odds where it was a week before that. So it feels to me as if this is not going to be the decisive moment, but there is increasing chatter about a potential cabinet reshuffle or ministerial reshuffle after the local elections to try and deal with some of the ideological deficiencies, shall we say, or differences within the government. What do you make of chatter about that? My experience, and I expect all of our experience, is that cabinet reshuffles usually create more problems than they solve. <laughs> I've just been able to come back from a trip to India with the Prime Minister where he gave an absolutely categoric assurance that Rishi Sunak, who we've been talking about earlier, will be will be there to deliver his budget in October. So as Robert says, he's probably done for. I mean, moving Rishi Sunak would be a huge thing for Boris Johnson too, but there are tensions there between number 10 and number 11 for sure. In a way, for Boris Johnson, having a weakened chancellor politically is not such a bad thing. The other reason why people thought there might be a reshuffle would be to remove Priti Patel because she wasn't seen to be getting a grip of the legal immigration question. Well, she's now come up with her Rwanda plan, which seems to have gone down quite well with conservatives in the country. So... I'm not sure. I mean, you're right. Certainly people are talking about a reshuffle, but people talking about reshuffle is often slightly different to actually delivering a reshuffle. It's a good way of keeping people in line. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the situation with Rishi Sunak, and that's, fundamentally, that would be the thing that mattered in this reshuffle, is whether he's prepared to take on the Treasury, remove his Chancellor. And the calculations of Rishi Sunak are quite complicated, because on the one level, he's a much weaker political figure than he was at the start of the year, when he was seen, still seen pretty much as the heir apparent. So that makes it easier for Boris Johnson to push him around and make him do the things he wants him to do. On the other hand, if his calculation is, well, the leadership's gone at least for a while, I may as well at least become a good Chancellor then he could be more defiant and more difficult. But I do think if there is going to be a reshuffle and it doesn't move the Chancellor, then fundamentally it's not a reshuffle that's going to move the dial. Mm. And finally, just Robert, I just want to quickly touch on another area of these local elections, which I'm sure we'll be talking about next Friday, which is Northern Ireland. And you wrote your column about this this week, that the polls suggest that Sinn Féin are going to come first and could create the first nationalist majority instalment. And that is going to pose big questions for the future of the union. And you've talked about this idea of is Stormont going to need to be reconfigured to deal with this? How big of a problem is that going to be? And could that be the dominant narrative? Well, I mean, I think there are a few complexities. First of all, Northern Ireland, and polling is not quite as reliable as, as some. It's a very complicated electoral system. And although Sinn Féin are clearly in poll position, one member of the government said to me, it's the working assumption is going to be they're the largest party. It isn't a guarantee, so I want to put a bit of cobalt on that. In fact, while it's hugely symbolic, I mean, the scale of the symbolism of them being the largest party is enormous, it would make very little actual practical difference to the way Northern Ireland functions, such as the nature of the power-sharing rules, which we haven't got time on this podcast for me to get into. But... It would be a moment, and I don't think it would change the dynamics of the union. I think there's still a clear majority against reunification in Northern Ireland at the moment. But I do think it will cease to function well. The DUP will probably refuse to go into power with, with Sinn Féin, which means the executive could be collapsed. And you've got the whole Northern Ireland protocol issue. So the government is going to have to look at the structures of whether Stormont work to serve people anymore. There are lots of reasons why they don't. I'd be delighted to get into Maybe we can talk about it after the elections. I know you don't want me to do it now. <laughs> with George and Robert, thank you very much. Behaviour and morality in Westminster, or Pestminster, as it's too often known, was back this week. 
The victim this time was Angela Rayner, Labour's deputy leader. A report in the Mail on Sunday newspaper suggested she was using her physique to distract the Prime Minister at the dispatch box. The report was widely condemned, but has been followed by a torrent of other allegations, including a Tory MP accused of watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber and a former Labour minister suspended for bullying a member of his staff. Speaking to ITV, Rayner said she was pleased the comments had been condemned across the political spectrum, but was disappointed that such a culture still exists in Westminster. I mean, I've been overwhelmed because when I heard of the story that was coming out and we rebutted it instantly and was like, this is disgusting, it's completely untrue, please don't run a story like that. Because I've was with my, i got teenage sons and I was with my teenage sons and I, I, I felt really sad again that my weekend and I was trying to prepare my children for seeing things online that they don't want to see their mum portrayed that way and I, I, I felt really down about that. Jasmine Cameron Shaleshi, welcome back to the pod. Let's start with the specific Angela Rayner story. Why do you think this has prompted so much outrage? I mean, it was a really extraordinary story, extraordinary in the sense of the allegations being made and the fact that it was published in a national newspaper. And I think it really resonated um, with a lot of women in Westminster because the comments essentially sent a message that regardless of your talents, your experience as a female MP, you can essentially be reduced to what you look like. And it really suggested that female MPs aren't serious political players in Westminster and they don't really have any skills beyond trying to distract men with their looks. That's a suggestion was insulting, as was the implicit classism that came with it. So there was a comparison between Rayner, who left comprehensive school at 16, then rising to become the deputy leader of the Labour Party. Her education and her upbringing was contrasted with Johnson, who's of course an Etonian educated at Oxford. And I think it really resonated with a lot of people because I think a lot of people in Westminster still have quite a rigid idea of what an MP looks and sounds like. And someone like Angela Rayner really contrasts with that sort of stereotypical image of a sort of white, male, old Oxford Etonian. And I think it's important to note that this all comes amid a backdrop of a series of stories concerning conduct within Westminster. So, for example, we had Imran Khan, the MP for Wakefield, who this month was found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. Then we had the individual, someone like Rob Roberts, who was the MP in North Wales, who was accused of sexually harassing a member of staff and then suspended but now sits in Parliament as an independent. So I think what happened with Rainer was really the straw that broke the camel's back because this has been building for several months now. Well Aisha Hazarika, it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast after so long. Do you agree with Jasmine there was a big class element to this as well as the sexism element because I think Angela Rayner I think is personally very good at the dispatch box and when she goes head to head with Boris Johnson on those occasions, Keir Starmer's had to opt out during Covid. I think she's actually better in many respects. So there was this awful element of demeaning her personally, but it just didn't ring true. I really agree with what Jasmine said. I think there's two elements. I think there's a sort of collision of of two snobberies. There's class snobbery and sex snobbery as well. I remember speaking to Angela Rayner about Prime Minister's questions and she said to me, she loves doing it. She loves the bawdiness of the chamber. You know, she is a very, very tough Woman. She also said she really relishes going up against Boris Johnson. She said that she actually only prepared for about half an hour because she wanted to be very spontaneous in the moment. And I think she's quite a unique creature in Westminster and a unique creature in politics. She is a woman. She is a woman from a working class background. She's had an incredibly tough start in life. She's worked incredibly hard to get where she is, but she's also unapologetic. She's ruthlessly ambitious. 
and she loves the, the the rowdiness of politics. And I think the Conservatives really see her as a threat. They see her as a threat on a number of levels, on a political level, but she's a threat to the established order of what a woman in politics should be like, which is be a nice girl, play by the rules, be a creature of men. She's not even a creature of Keir Starmer. Remember, Keir Starmer tried to sack her famously and ended up she ended up getting a promotion. So she's a really tough cookie, but... Even she was upset by this because there is a a misogyny in Westminster. And I think this applies to women of all different classes and backgrounds, which is at some point you will be reduced to your body parts in Westminster. No matter how good you are, you're reduced to how fanciable you are, what you wear. You're either young and, and sexy or you're an old hag. You're not allowed to just be a woman who's clever, who has a certain ideology. You're very sexualized and reduced to your looks. And I think women are just sick and tired of it. And I think one of the things that Jasmine said that I really agree with is that I think women from across the political spectrum are fed up. And it's all the players across Westminster. Yes, it was a a horrible Tory MP that briefed this, but there's a culture of male MPs, male advisors, and some male senior editors as well, all joining in to demean women and give them a good kicking. Well, it's been very striking that in response to the Rayner story, there were many senior Conservatives who have acknowledged that this is an institutional problem. Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International Trade Secretary, told this to Sky News on Friday. All of us uh, as uh, women in Parliament have uh, been subjected to uh, inappropriate language, uh, to, you know, wandering hands, as uh, well, my granny used to call it. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't change. The vast majority uh, of uh, the men I work with are delightful. They're you know committed parliamentarians. They're passionate about the causes they fight. But there are a few for whom uh, you know too much drink, or indeed a sort of you know a view that somehow being elected makes them you know God's gift to women that they can suddenly uh, please themselves. That is never okay. Jasmine, I think you're probably the newest member of someone of the Westminster bubble out of the three of us here. And Aisha, you've obviously been around Westminster for quite a long period of time. I've been there 12 years. And it's very depressing, this story, because I remember we've gone through several waves of allegations about sexism, of bad behaviour in Westminster. And our colleague, Laura Hughes, wrote an awful lot about this in recent years. And it sort of felt like we were getting into a better place on this. But this week feels like, in fact, in some ways, we might have actually gone back backwards and that this behaviour isn't being tackled. What do you think it is, Jasmine, with your sort of fresh eyes to this? It's quite interesting because I joined Westminster in September 2020. So for the first year of Parliament was either hybrid or in lockdown. So I didn't really get a sense of what Westminster is really like. And it's only since I say September 2021 where things have returned to normal. I've got a bit more of an understanding of Westminster culture. And I think what struck me as a relative newcomer to Parliament is that for all the discussions about reforming Parliament, and some initiatives have been put in. Say, for example, there's now proxy voting for MPs. We have the independent complaints and grievance scheme, which allows all current and former members of the parliamentary community to put forward their complaints. So yes, there have been some steps to make Parliament more welcoming. But I think as someone that's relatively new to Westminster, I say it still feels like a bit of an old boys club. It sort of feels like there's a culture where it's sort of an open secret that this MP or that MP is a bit dodgy. I've had comments directed at me as a young black woman navigating Parliament that I'm not particularly, you know, I've not been comfortable with. And I think there definitely still is an issue. And I think 
think it's quite interesting hearing people like, I think it was Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who sort of touched upon the overall culture of Westminster and he's advised MPs to, to not get drunk after work and to sort of avoid Parliament's bars. And yes, Westminster is a pretty intense environment and it's long hours and there's a bit of a drinking culture. But I, I would argue against that and say, I think a lot of people get caught up in thinking that Westminster is exceptional and beyond the realms of normal rules. Yes, sometimes you know, it's a bit boozy, you have to meet contacts over lunch or after work or in the pub, but ultimately there's no excuse for misconduct. There is a level of individual responsibility that needs to be taken here. And I would actually argue that we expect our politicians to lead by example. Westminster is where we expect the best behaviour from those who have the privilege to serve constituents. And I think it's been slightly dispiriting as a relative newcomer to see that not all MPs think that. Well, Aisha, it's not just been about sexism. We've seen a whole bunch of other allegations this week. The most striking and totally bizarre one is an allegation by two senior Tories that one of their fellow Tory MPs was actually spotted watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber. And you see this and just have to think... Really, what earth is wrong with our political system that you produce a parliamentarian who is sitting in a legislative chamber and thinks that is in any way acceptable behaviour? Does it suggest a much bigger structural problem of the kind of people who are becoming MPs or the behaviour that is seen as acceptable to when you are an MP, when you become an MP? I think it does point to a deep behavioural problems and a certain type as well. I mean, I've been thinking really hard about this politician who was caught watching porn and the allegations are that it wasn't just once, it wasn't just in the chamber, it was in a, in a committee room. To me, that suggests a degree of confidence about doing that. I suspect this is probably not the first time this person has done it. And we've talked a lot about structural and institutional change which is very important. But I think what we haven't really talked about is behavioural characteristics, which we are still seeing so much of. Clearly an arrogance, a confidence about this type of behaviour, a sense of entitlement that somehow becoming an MP means you can behave in any way you want. You can treat people in a certain way, whether it's sexual misconduct, whether it's bullying. It's a sort of perk of the job to a lot of people. And while there's a certain amount of, you know, sniggering about this being such an absurd story about watching pornography, it does shame our parliament. We have one of the most famed and, and sort of hallowed debating chambers on the planet. And to think that that type of behaviour is going on, but it also points to something I think darker in politics. If you look at just the sheer number of MPs who you know have not just been accused of sexual misconduct, but have actually had criminal convictions for sexual misconduct of late. There's a very, very long list. That suggests to me that there is something darker going on about the type of people we are electing and what they think they can and do get away with. I had a male MP who rang me very late last night, very upset about everything, doing a bit of soul searching. And they said to me, we really do have to think about changing our behaviour. Jasmine just said, look, you know, it's not just all about the booze culture, but I think there is quite a level of alcohol. Westminster has this sense of exceptionalism that because you're elected, you can just get away with anything. You're born to rule, or in this case, porn to rule. Well, Jasmine, finally, 
obviously politics is not like any other business because people are there and there is this natural power dynamic, which I think this, the, the physical structure of the Palace of Westminster actually speaks to in some respects. The fact you've got this very old, grand, ornate building. The whole thing creates power divides in some way between younger staffers and special areas and dining rooms for MPs and all the rest of it. And how much of that is British politics and the way it's formed and just maybe politics generally? I feel like British politics is pretty unique in that regard. I mean, I do think that elements of Westminster do create a sort of a dysfunctional work environment that breathes a sense of entitlement among some MPs. I think MPs are in quite an unusual position in that sometimes I think of MPs' offices um, like little companies. They're in charge of a constituency office, a Westminster office. They've got a team running an operation for them. But unlike actual companies, there's no HR manager. And crucially, MPs can't get fired for something like misconduct. The only way to remove an MP from their seat is for a recall petition or if they resign. And so sometimes I do think that sort of structure creates an attitude among some MPs, definitely not all, but it creates the sense of invincibility. If you're an MP with a large majority and you've been in Parliament for, for decades, you sort of feel as though you can get away with making sleazy remarks or making your colleagues feel uncomfortable because in essence, who's going to stop you? And I think you raise a good point about the power dynamics, because I think it's important to stress that, yes, we're hearing a lot from female MPs across the political spectrum, and that is, of course, necessary and needed. But in these conversations about harassment, we need to remember those who don't necessarily have a means or a platform to speak out in Parliament. So that's parliamentary staffers, that's political advisors. And I think, you know, my heart really goes out to those sort of young staffers who are fresh from university, and they end up working with an MP who's problematic or conducting themselves in an inappropriate manner. And they may not even feel comfortable discussing it with their peers or colleagues, let alone tweeting about it. And I think among staffers I've spoken to, despite there are now structures in place to put in place formal complaints, there are fears that their complaints won't be taken seriously or the individual in question gets a slap on the wrist, whereas they, the complainant, their reputation gets tarnished. So I think there are a lot of structural issues that do need to be addressed in, in terms of power dynamics, and in terms of how reporting misconduct is done. And just very briefly, Aisha, one last quick question to you. Obviously, when you worked for Harriet Harman for many years for Deputy of the Labour Party, you were involved in trying to get more female Labour MPs into Westminster because that's one very obvious thing we need to do. Parliament is still nowhere near 50-50, but, you know, it's not going to notice the Tory party is a bit further behind in terms of the number of women it has in Parliament. Do you think that's one that needs to be done? We need to have a big push towards a 50-50 Parliament and also having more gender equality across advice advisors and across aides against clerks. Would that be something that would help resolve this? Yeah, I definitely think it will help because I think what's difficult is that when women are not a critical mass, it's very difficult to speak out because as, as Jasmine said, whether you're an advisor or, or even an elected politician in a minority, you're ambitious, you want to get ahead. And if you start calling out behaviour, you're suddenly the prude, you're the troublemaker, that puts a, a black mark against your name. What I've really noticed, which I suppose this is the one thing to be optimistic about throughout this Angela Rayner debacle because there are more women in politics, but also more women in the lobby as well. There has been this pushback, there has been a, a you know a vocal backlash. And that is why we're having this conversation. So I think getting more women into politics is very important. Getting women but in positions of real power, Seb, because I've worked for many cabinets where there are some women pushed to the forefront. But they're sort of there to coin a phrase that Caroline Flint once used, 
they're there as window dressing rather as having real power. So we need to have more women with real power across the architecture of political power in this country. That is politicians, advisors, senior journalists, editors, lobbyists, all of those players make up the stage that is Westminster. So you have to have more women across all of those key roles. Jasmine Aisha, thank you very much for coming on. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us or the usual places you get podcasts to get the episodes every Saturday morning. And while you're there, leave us a positive review and a nice rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thank you very much for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.